0: At Pathic Podcast, <laughs> TNP. Hello
1: there. Hi, and thanks for joining us. I'm Dr. Cara Dionisio.
0: And I'm Dr. David Miller, and we hear your frustrations. This show is for you.
1: This show is for you if you're feeling like your current healthcare strategy is not getting to the root cause or the underlying reasons for your health.
0: This show is for you if you've been told that you're fine, but you definitely don't feel very well.
1: This show is for you if you're walking out of your doctor's office with one, two, three, four, or even five
0: medications without any mention of diet, lifestyle, or a long-term game plan. This show is for you if you've got several specialists taking care of you, but no one is really putting it all together.
1: This show is for you if you believe that health should be part of health care. These problems have solutions. We know it. Our patients know it.
0: And we want you to know it.
1: Naturopathic medicine is the solution that you need to know about.
0: Focus vision of improving health outcomes with the use of high quality naturopathic doctor designed supplements is 100% in alignment with what we're trying to do here at the podcast. Their enthusiasm for supporting what we're trying to do for you, the listener, encourages us to keep producing content that will inform and inspire. Thanks again to our sponsor, Cytomatrix Canada. Okay, welcome to another episode of That Naturopathic Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Michelle Pobega naturopathic doctor how hello are you
1: everyone. i'm good i'm good but better question is how are you you've had quite the week since we've last spoken david
0: i got the rona
1: oh shit. yeah
0: yeah i'm thriving with coronavirus right now
1: i love it i love it yeah I mean, it's okay yeah i'm doing all right good i'm glad because the whole if i'm that correct, won't make the whole, news you're... though will it <laughs> nope david just miller case, is just, thriving. Case, just case numbers. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm glad that it was mild for you. I mean, as far as as far as the word on the street is, this current variant is far more mild, even more mild than they would have expected. I was listening to a podcast with Dr. Paul Anderson, and he was talking about how the mutation might have even like surpassed the downgrade in symptomology that we would have originally expected, which is actually pretty great.
0: uh, Dr. Paul Anderson is the smartest naturopath man who bridges I believe, kind of like the Western conventional medical understanding with naturopathic wisdom par excellence.
1: He is a gift. He is a gift.
0: I suggest everyone check. He, I think he's got a free YouTube site where it's just like That's where it mad. is. Yeah. So like everyone check out Dr. Paul Anderson or Uncle Grandpa Paul, as I called him on podcast once. Because he is just like, he's like everyone's uncle or grandpa to the naturopaths, right?
1: And his knowledge Blows my mind. he's Deep. so, so <laughs> he's he's so brilliant and i and I like that he comes from things from a quite an unbiased perspective too. He just lays it out as it is, and I do appreciate that,
0: yeah, he, I think his dad was a doctor, uh, so he, I mean he's he has an appreciation, but guess what, guys? you can have appreciation for natural and and conventional medicine, and uh, I think you're talking to or you're listening to a couple of people that do um. Yeah, but in this black and white world, at times, it's hard to find the middle. Okay, but we could go on and on about Dr. Paul Anderson, because right. clearly yeah. we have crushes on him. We love him.
1: We really do have crushes on him. Yeah, yeah,
0: we love him. And he, you, he's like, you want him to be your grandpa. He's so cool, yeah. too. He swears appropriately and minimally, too, which is always helpful. Um, but for, uh, for, the, for the listeners out there, I wanted to say we're going to talk about IBS part two this week
1: Bart to deuce
0: yeah <laughs> unintended yeah
1: i wish i had a I wish i had one of those like noisemakers in the background or something yeah
0: we're number one <laughs> in the number two game i saw that on a like a toilet cleaning guy's truck or something it was awesome
1: oh that's good that's yeah, very number nice number
0: one in the number two game
1: respect well, that
0: <laughs> well that's us so let's maybe we'll just have a quick recap of what we talked about and i don't think this is um maybe it's not everything we talked about and all the funny jokes, but listen, we talked about IBS uh, last week and we talked about the mind-body perspective. Remember we talked about stress, Tonya Lee's case where she just like yeah. gave them a an Nervine and oh, it kind of got better. Um, we talked about chewing and how important that is sort of breaking down uh, foods is just you know pretty critical for the rest of the system to do well. Um, chime in here at any point too, because I'm just sort of going off our list that we talked about. Yeah um preparing preparing meals meals. yeah
1: (laughs) in stereo and also just like taking the time to appreciate your meal smell it look at it get your senses active because that starts to send the message to your digestive system in advance of food even entering your mouth so
0: and and one of those uh things that starts to happen is the production of stomach acid right (laughs) and we talked about it uh briefly but we decided we're going to talk about it a little bit more at length uh today and sort of how to maybe address stomach acid. Yeah. Uh, and then I'm going to defer to Michelle for her experience in this, cause I don't use it as much as she does. So um, we're going to go with experience. Um, then we, we talked about SIBO a little bit, um, mm-hmm. but probably, probably a bit of a brush over and, and we'll just maybe clarify a couple of things yes. with that or go a little deeper. Right.
1: Yeah. And we began to touch on some of the mechanical stuff. I mean, I brought that up to you and how I was, you kind of keyed into me assessing certain parts of the abdomen a little bit more with physical exam work. And I appreciated that. So I think we want to elaborate a little bit more on that in this, in this podcast.
0: Yeah, we'll go. And you mentioned specifically ileocecal, uh, yeah, ileocecal valve and pyloric sphincter. Yep. Um, and I, I think, yeah, those two would probably be, the if you were just, you know, say someone's just learning, those would be the two sort of critical places to start your your learning in um mm-hmm. okay uh oh and we were gonna talk about uh we're going to talk about i'm gonna use my g's don't don't lose your g's we're gonna we're going to talk about oh my <laughs> teaching myself we're English having an elocution
1: <laughs> lesson right now.
0: uh we're going to talk about um pelvic floor and constipation a little bit we've talked about it in uh or i talked about it with janice taylor uh, who is a pelvic floor physio and just a good friend and we love her. Um, so but we're just going to reiterate how important that is because it applies to IBS too.
1: Totally. Oh, and we talked about probiotics on our last appointment, how it's not always the first line of defense. So today yes. we're going to expand on that and talk a little bit more about like prebiotics and postbiotics um, and highlight a few of the the lovely things that those, those particular areas have to offer for gut health.
0: And the last thing on our list, Michelle, was uh, something I... I'd probably make more enemies than friends with, I, I'm, we're just going to talk about the pitfalls of adopting Siebel mania. Uh, just, just continue to know, know the limitations, I guess would be maybe a mm-hmm. more precise or diplomatic way of sharing my opinion on that. Yeah. Um, Okay. So
1: I think that a good place to start is to remind people some of the symptoms of IBS because we talked about the more technical definition in the last podcast, but I feel like for listeners who are not naturopathic doctors or clinicians, you know, a big one or the one that I find sends people into my office more, mo- most often is bloating. Yeah. Um, that painful bloating, the expanded belly, that like trapped gas, that pressure in the abdomen that tends to be like the number one symptom that draws people to seek help. I find.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think you said in your case too, that was, that was a big one for you, right?
1: That was, that was, that was a big one for me for sure. At one point it turned into (laughs) crazy (laughs) diarrhea for like months on end (laughs) because of stress. And like, if y'all haven't listened to the podcast, you know, I have no shame you I'll just share whatever (laughs) about my health. (laughs) Um, But thankfully I was able to resolve that, but it did end up spiraling back poorly enough my health where I wasn't, there was just a period of excessive stress and it just really made everything that much worse and everything fell apart. And then it was that point where I was like, Oh, I gotta, I gotta do something about that where it became like really, really excessive eliminations. Um, But yeah.
0: Excessive eliminations.
1: Excessive eliminations. I find that a lot of people don't really know what normal bowel movements are supposed to be i even had a gentleman come into my office and he and i think we spoke about this at the last appointment at the last podcast oh yeah he didn't, didn't, didn't even recognize even that his bowel movements were too loose and almost diarrhea like that 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 was not good and even another client of mine came in a female and she was like i didn't really realize this was a problem until my boyfriend pointed out when we moved in together i was and it's yeah. funny how people don't have a connection to what normal bowels are
0: cool boyfriend um yeah yeah, so if you don't know, now you need to know. I, uh, Michelle, tell us about the uh, the most enviable stool.
1: Ooh, it's like a smooth sausage. So a nice wow. smooth, I know, it's my Italian came out. <laughs> it's like, a <laughs> it's a formed, solid, but not hard, smooth, kind of one to two sausages. Yeah. That's kind of how it should ideally look. Yeah. Um but how it should,
0: should it feel after two?
1: And it should be a complete void. Thank you for the prompt yeah. statement. <laughs> and it should be easy to pass. It yeah. should also sink. And it should be about a medium to medium brownish, dark brown um, no. regularly. You shouldn't see like varying colors or food, undigested food particles. It shouldn't float. It shouldn't be greasy looking. Um, or so- have
0: actual grease around it. Like I've I've seen it.
1: The oil slicks.
0: Yeah, I've seen the slicks and I've heard about it from patients. So yeah, you don't want those oil slicks.
1: When I prompt my, my patients for questions and I was like, how are your bowel movements? They're like, oh, they're fine. They're normal. And I'm like, can you explain? Can you no explain a little bit talk more about it? Right. And then, and then I prompt them with questions. Do you ever see oil slicks? Do you see mucus? And they're like, and they just look at me like, nobody's ever asked me this. They're like, I don't, I don't know. I'm going to have to start paying attention to my pool. I was like, please do. Cause we're going to check in on these regularly.
0: What a crazy thing to not check into though. It's like constant, it's daily feedback, you know, of yeah. a major health metric. Um, yeah. yeah. So yeah, mucus, that's a good one to always ask about. Uh, what was the other one you said?
1: undigested foods. Yeah, mucus. that's a big
0: one. We talked, did we talk about undigested food and the pylorus? Yes, yes. with the
1: stomach acid yeah. and the, the stomach not functioning optimally. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: That's a key one. I saw that in another patient this week. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, don't worry, I was only seeing patients virtually because I,
1: <laughs> I I'm in I, quarantine. I have all, I have, I have all matter of like trust that you have maintained a respectable level of patient care during this time. <laughs>
0: And, and decrease my mental health in the, in the, in doing so. Oh my God.
1: Right.
0: Anyway. Um, so
1: other IBS symptoms. So we want those perfect. We want those classic stools regularly. You should be going at least eliminating once a day. I see people saying that uh, anywhere between you know, three times a day to three times a week. And I'm like, three times a week. I was like, not in a toxic world that we live in where we actually have have more to get rid of.
0: That's crazy, but that's also in the conventional sort of literature, right? So that you have to go, okay, well, I understand if you think that's normal because like that's what WebMD or whatever thinks is normal, but I'd like to talk to the guy at WebMD who's crapping three times a week and thinking that that's sufficient.
1: (laughs) Nope. It's not. It's not. So Justin and Dr. and Dave in my opinion who treat gastrointestinal health, it's not normal. No,
0: no mate. Not good enough.
1: (laughs) Not good enough. I mean, think about if you
0: eat three times a day and you only, I mean, three times a day and you only crap once to three times a week. Like even once
1: a week might not be sufficient for some people because like in an ideal world, our body should be eliminating to allow space for the rest of the next bolus of food to be entering our system. So in a perfect world, we should be eliminating two to three times a day.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's what the whole gastrocolic reflex is about, right? The gastro stomach and colic colon. So the stomach goes, hey, new food, and it goes and transfers the signal. I think through the um, connective tissues that link the stomach to the transverse colon, it says, hey, guess what? you got more food, so you can let go of that other stuff. And that's why there's some people who like poop like crazy right after eating.
1: Yeah. Some yeah.
0: Communication going on there.
1: So we want, we want those good poops. So if it's too hard or you're skipping days, or if it's too loose and it's coming out of you like lava or like a mud pile, it's no bueno. Not
0: good. <laughs> Not no bueno. Good. And it also, uh, like just to, I'm going to reiterate how important it is to feel like you're done when you're done. This is something I've struggled with here. Do you want some more vulnerability? Here you go. That's one I've struggled with. And my IBS in my, in my day has been more like, like constipation predominant. I didn't really have too much of the bloating sometimes, sometimes a farty mess, but I I feel like everyone gets to be a farty mess once in a while. Um, but yeah, that was, it, it can manifest differently. So my problem was probably very different than Michelle's or maybe yours too. So, um, that feeling of being done is an important thing. And it's, um, I'm glad it's, it's actually something they talked about in the room, room three or room four criteria of IBS, which is, I'm glad they talk about that because yeah. it's important. You should feel like you're done.
1: Yeah. should feel complete.
0: And I think when you don't feel like it's complete, it's an indication that your pelvic floor is not so hot. Um, yeah. apparently my pelvic floor is not so hot. So I'm going to be ringing up Janice Taylor. Ring, ring. Get me, check, check me out. <laughs>
1: So, okay, other symptoms of IBS before we get into all the other stuff. Burping can be a big one.
0: Yeah, we didn't talk about that last time. We I didn't don't talk think... about
1: that. No, the the heartburn, reflux.
0: Do you remember what burping is in uh, Chinese medicine, what they call it?
1: Oh, I can't remember.
0: Rebellious stomach chi. Re-
1: rebellious stomach chi. The Chinese best, medicine has the best terms. Best
0: terms. Yeah. So good. I love so it. Good. Like the uterus is the blood palace.
1: Oh, it really is, isn't it?
0: <laughs> Anyways, rebellious stomach chi is never good. Stomach rules descending. And things are supposed to go from your mouth to your anus.
1: They're supposed to go down, not up.
0: One way only, kids. Yeah. That's yeah. it. That's it. Uh,
1: what else do we have for symptoms? Uh, oh, alternating constipation, diarrhea. So not even just abnormal in one direction. Just you can never be flip-flopping. Yeah, you don't know what how to trust your poops. Yeah. You don't know what's coming out. Just like you can't trust a fart sometimes that might come out with a little poop you got you taught me yeah. that one or really stinky farts and just like oh
0: and really stinky poops okay so yeah again this doesn't get talked about a, a lot either and i feel like i've made patients feel weird but i i try not to because i don't really care it's like what all i ever talk about it's probably the same as you like it's yeah. all you ever talk about it's like whatever so anyways obviously poop stinks yeah okay it does mm-hmm. it does you know but there's varying degrees yeah, and if you
1: offend yourself, it's probably excessive. Wow. That's how I put it to my my people. I was like, there's always a poop smell. But if you even offend yourself, that's yeah, remarkable. Yeah.
0: If you start gagging from yourself,
1: <laughs> right? you're like,
0: not good. Ooh.
1: You have an Ace Ventura moment coming out of the bathroom. <laughs> <"Ooh."> <laughs> Do, not Do not go, go, in, go there. in there.
0: Okay, so, <laughs> so that's bad. That's bad. But um, yeah, even just like, mm. I'll, I, you can even see, say more like, you know, whatever wordy, like malodorous, extremely foul or malodorous. Yeah, it is. If it, if it feels better to talk about like that than stinky, that's okay. But it, very foul or very malodorous, often fat maldigestion is going on or maybe protein mal- maldigestion too.
1: Lactose intolerance too, I, I find gives stinky poops.
0: So there's a lot of, I mean, look, we looked at all the macromolecules there, right? There's fats and proteins and carbs and can cause sugars. problems.
1: Yeah. yeah. And microbial overgrowth, because same with your body odor. It's usually the wrong type of bacteria that are giving you an odor smell. And the same thing with your poops. If you have the wrong bacteria in your colon, well.
0: Yeah. I I talk about them take, like, we feed them and they take, like, microbial craps in us. And then we have to clean up their (laughs) microbial craps.
1: That was so funny to me, but it's true.
0: Right? It's like uh, you have to clean up after them. Yeah. So it's like having a bunch of, like, dirty teenagers in the basement and you give them a bunch of like beer and pizza you know you're gonna have to go clean up the cans and the pizza boxes and all that and probably will stink down there um
1: yeah i don't know why i laugh so hard at that but i found that very amusing micro <laughs> micro craps <laughs> i don't know why i had well, a it's true because i enjoyed like,
0: it they just they're in there yeah they're in the they're in your place and they don't care once they take their microbial crap they are happy you you have to get rid of it. And that's when maybe other orders- That's when orders... you got to take a crap. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: All right, let's get into it. Let's, so so those are some of the most common symptoms for SIBO. So anybody who feels like they can resonate with that, keep listening.
0: SIBO, you you said Sorry, SIBO- which IBS, is, oh my yeah. gosh, because I just but,
1: I don't want to do that interchangeably because they're not always very, the same.
0: Yeah, thing. but it's very natural to, to do that.
1: Because there we is a lot of overlap time. though. We did talk yeah. about that. So why don't we go into that a little bit more with the whole SIBO IBS area?
0: Sure. So I would say um, the the advent of us knowing about IBS is prior to us knowing as much about SIBO. And uh, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth is probably one contributing factor to IBS in some people. I guess that would be a fairly precise way of saying it.
1: Yeah. I remember when I've looked into certain statistics, but again, this might be based on medical literature or modern medicine. And I just, I, so a lot of medical doctors just don't do the testing. They just, they're not as thorough as me, but they say sometimes up to 30%, if I remember correctly of IBS, could Have be SIBO? related to SIBO. If I remember the, the stat, I think it was somewhere in that ballpark. Yeah. Um, and then you're kind of like, I, okay, well, what about the other 60%? You're like, what do I do with that? But there's so I many other it, options that are- involved. Are
0: you saying that there's probably more than 30%?
1: I think so. Yeah, I think I'm with there you on be, that. I think there's more than 30%. I think that it's been overlooked for a long time. And I think a lot yeah. of people just don't get- They're not assessed probably the way that they could or should be. So I don't I know do, how that number was collected, but voila.
0: Yeah, but I mean, 48% of statistics are useless. We know that.
1: 100% uh, of statistics. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs>
0: <laughs> or uh, what uh, what do those nerds nerds say? I like it. They say uh, uh, all models are wrong. Some are helpful. Mm. Like that's another good one. Um, but yeah, I, I think the advent of IBS is sort of prior to SIBO. I think what I appreciate about SIBO is that it's opened up a kind of. I think it's validated or something. Some some of they've it's it's increased the um, interest or investigation uh in into like things like IBS because it's it's something a little bit more tangible in a way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Where I
0: struggle with is it becomes sort of like people just blame everything on the SIBO. And I'm like, well, no, the bugs are uh the bugs are just taking advantage of an, an environment that is suitable to their proliferation. And so I think it's overly simplistic to say it that SIBO is the cause. Mm-hmm. of IBS or is it sort of like a correlative thing that's that's where I sort of was one of the ways I struggle with with SIBO because if we just focus everything on okay we've got these we've got too many bugs well maybe you know what because I've sort of tuned out of the SIBO thing I tuned in for a long time and then I tuned out a bit because I'm like I, I it, it got to be like a little bit too like everything's about kill these bugs kill these bugs and it's like well <clears throat> that doesn't really fit. Well.
1: I mean, I think there's a lot of validity to it. I do a lot of microbial testing with the fancy tests that I have in Georgetown, especially for a lot of my digestive health. And there's always yeah. something, but a lot of times it's really dominantly yeast. Right. Right. A lot of times it's just it's just opportunistic microbes that already exist in our body. There could be infectious bacteria, there could be parasites, it could be yeast, there could be fungus, there could be any number of things. So it's not always just SIBO where it's an overgrowth factor right. in the small intestines. So, but again, it', it even even with my findings and people getting flagged for various microbes, I still have to ask the question as to why were these allowed to... Inhabit and embed themselves so intensely and
0: proliferate, yeah,
1: proliferate, right? There's obviously an inherent weakness somewhere, and what is that? So, yes, there's an eradication phase because you do have to get rid and lower that 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 people's sensitivity is to to react to everything is reduced that people feel a level of comfort, but not without those other steps, like not without strengthening digestive system, strengthening the terrain, and all those kinds of things, improving. Parasympathetic nervous response, like we touched on the last time, improving stomach acid. like th- that's that's all just as valuable.
0: I think the appeal is it's ten tangible sciencey yeah. origins. And,
1: and I think with that is if you're treating the microbial stuff, people will start to notice a difference with good protocols. But sometimes people just learn to chew their food more. People trying to get into parasympathetic nervous response, it's less cause and effect that they can seem in a more immediate like in a more immediate yeah. cause and effect. So I feel like it's harder to get people on board with those things and that foundational work.
0: Yeah, I think and and um, there's other, you know, I had a patient who was insistent on getting it. I think I did one test for SIBO this year. And she was very insistent, very yeah. insistent on it. I was okay, that's good. Cause he, because like I said, there's has gotten a bit more of like press. Or it's like one of the those naturopathic sort of uh, things that has crept into the, the sort of more conventional, yeah, um, uh, understanding. So,
1: which in certain ways is great because now there's more of, of an invested interest in research and data collection, and now they're learning exactly. about the gut brain connection and the, you know, the second brain and leaky gut equals leaky brain, and all these things have evolved from that. So I'm very thankful for that. But you're right; it's you can't just paint everybody with the same brush.
0: Uh, one of the one of the main and I we did want to touch on this. So I'm sort of starting from a negative uh, <clears throat> perspective here. Sorry, sorry guys. But one of the things I want to be very uh, wary of with with SIBO was uh, how, like, if I was a hardcore SIBO uh, believer, as if it was the be all, end all for all sort of IBS symptoms and all that, I wouldn't be using possibly my most uh, valuable intervention, which is the most boring absolutely the most boring intervention which is psyllium fiber yeah Uh, because it has a prebiotic potential but if um again the SIBO people need to read what prebiotic means and and prebiotics by definition selectively support good bacteria Mm mm-hmm So, I wonder sometimes if the aggravations that people get when they have prebiotic containing foods or prebiotic containing fibers (laughs) or whatever is that because they have too much bacteria. And that's why I was going to, I was actually going to get you to maybe comment on that if you know more than I do about SIBO, because I've heard it sometimes it's like the bad, it's more of the bad bacteria or it's just too much bacteria, like period. If you're supporting good bacteria in an environment that already has too many bacteria, Perhaps that's why you get the symptomatology, but you risk the you risk starving your good bacteria if you don't feed them.
1: I think I have some clients who are who have come to me already on a low FODMAPS diet and they've had reduction of symptoms. And even though they struggle with it, they have this fear of coming off of it. Yeah. Because of the symptoms, because the microbial imbalance was never properly addressed. And then my concern, and I always express this concern is that you're lacking a really high variety of fibers, which feeds your good. So even though we're starving the bad, you're also starving the good. And we're still not creating a really strong, vital environment for things that we want to thrive to thrive. So I hate, like I always tell people, if I'm going to do a SIBO protocol with you, I'm not putting you on a FODMAPS diet. I want you to eat as variety as possible because also I want to see your body's ability to tolerate those fibers better as we continue yeah. to improve the terrain. Cause I don't want those to be eliminated. I'm very much a strong believer in that. Now I'm not going out of my way to give them psyllium or prebiotics, or I'm not going to go and have them buy like a whole bunch of Jerusalem artichokes and like get a crap ton of inulin in them. Cause that's just yeah. going to set them on fire. But I do want them to not neglect just general vegetable fibers and fruit fibers and avocados and you know like it's just ridiculous to me it it it, it yeah
0: also good luck being a Polish Italian person and not eating garlic and onions
1: or sauerkraut or <laughs> yeah like i mean <laughs> like it's just no way i don't
0: know if i can cook without onions i i know I'm, like, I'm constantly I have... when i cook i'm like okay <laughs> yeah i'm always
1: olive oil garlic
0: (laughs) yeah exactly so like how sustainable that's that's what i was like i was just being a smart ass um but really with um i don't mind fodmaps as a diagnostic uh sort of test because if Mm -hmm. you if you do uh fodmaps sort of uh limiting diet for maybe what two four weeks and everything gets better well you know there's definitely there's a microbial component
1: yeah so it's helpful for that yeah, perspective but yeah, then people are afraid wise. people are sometimes afraid to go back to eating the way they were because they don't want the symptoms
0: mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah if you're not tough enough for onions and garlic you're gonna find ways to make it tough enough. i
1: don't think i ever cut them out of my diet even with the bloating and the whatever i was like no i can't <laughs> um and yeah. and then i just did the other work instead And I never had to remove them and I might, my microbiome was better for it. And now that I'm on the other side and like we talked before, I consciously have prebiotic, a prebiotic powder, um, and, a and a psyllium in the mornings Yeah. more often than not. I usually have that as part of my morning routine.
0: Okay. So I think, I think a good sort of transition for this part Mm. is because one, one of the, things I think a lot of SIBO practitioners do or I call them SIBO practitioners because it seems like when you're in it you're like you drink the SIBO Kool-Aid you're you're really in the Kool-Aid of SIBO they they talk a lot about um you know supporting stomach acid which I think is really there's there's good that there's like that that's very very reasonable however I don't know enough about it and this is where I wanted to say Michelle what's your experience with stomach acid and working with stomach acid and different things you've tried and and how that affects um ibs and siebel cases
1: all right well let's start with like some of the symptoms that are going to be related to stomach acid you're going to burp more you might even have gerd or reflux symptoms and you're probably going to have more bloating gas pains undigested food particles in the stools those are classic low stomach acid types of symptoms um and how that relates? What about to... the
0: what about that um rosacea?
1: Oh yeah, rosacea is one too. But I don't yeah. I don't relate that so much to like GI related symptoms that you would see with C, with IBS. But yes, rosacea is apparently a low stomach. It's related to low stomach acid. I bet you a lot of stuff is related to low stomach acid that we haven't even quite made the connection to. Oh yeah. I'm sure there's a lot more. Just like I'm, Dave so much. Yeah, go. Let's
0: shout it out to Dave <laughs> Nelson again. He, I think he said he's going to be. He has written, or he's contributing to, um, acid alkaline, uh, mm. sort of base like uh, acid alkaline status. And um, I wouldn't be surprised if he talks a little bit about the stomach being a big part of that, yeah. um In his paper, anyway, we'll get we'll get Dave on again. That's a given.
1: I yeah, know. Well obviously. And we'll just so, sit there
0: and, and go, tell us more, Dave. Just fangirl. Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, just like if Dr. A. And was on, I just fangirl him. Yeah, we'll um, get him on again. Yeah, we'll do that. And so, so with the stomach acid, the reason it's related to SIBO there's a few, there's two different moving parts. One is that you need acid to break down your food. And if you also need the stomach acid to be sufficient, because that also then signals things further down, like bile release and pancreatic juices, which are to help you break down all your macronutrients, your fats, your carbs, your, your proteins further. Um, so that in and of itself, if you can't break those down, then that's going to cause a lot of more indigestion in the lower, lower down, possibly feeding the wrong microbes, causing gut inflammation, leaky gut, all these undigested food particles are just going to wreak havoc. And then also the low stomach acid, because we're starting, it's a first line of defense to kill off any microbes that come in with our food. So not having enough, can possibly allow pathogens to move further into your intestinal tract rather than being killed off on a stomach level. So that's two reasons why they could be related to IBS and SIBO. And you mentioned something recently too where if you're not breaking down your vegetable fibers, then those fibers are even there they're, that's more food for the bacteria. They have to they have to work harder to break it down so more fermentation is going to happen in the intestinal tract because they weren't properly broken down in the stomach. Correct. And even
0: just yeah, yet not only that that, but also just more work, um unfinished work for the next parts of the digestive tract for everything. They're like they're not ready for it.
1: Yeah, like yeah. you didn't do
0: your job, stomach. Break it down, brother. It
1: yeah, is- and a lot of times the 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 bloating is gonna come up because a lot of people don't realize that when your microbiome feeds, it feeds through fermentation. When you ferment something, you create gas. So the yeah. gas, the bloating, the, those symptoms are gonna come up. So if you have the wrong types of microbes overeating, then we're gonna create more problematic gas and if they're on the wrong space, like it, like with SIBO, where it's small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, we're only supposed to have a certain amount of back microbes in the small intestines. If there's too much in there because of a backlogging or whatever, yeah. or the MMC has been shut down and they didn't flush into the colon adequately. Michelle, then- you
0: can't say MMC without telling what it means.
1: We can get to that because I also want to talk about the okay. elastical valve relation to all the flushing and stuff too. So I want to get okay. back to that. So, but the mitigating motor complexes, how things are moved from the stomach through the small intestines and dumped into the colon. And if that's, that sh- if that's shut down or impaired, then we're not having that proper sweeping of food through the intestinal tract. And it could be a bottlenecking in the small intestines and the musculature of the small intestines thinner than the colon. So if you have gas and bloating happening there, you're going to feel it. Like you're going to feel it a lot, <laughs> right? Where the colon is designed to hold onto a larger volume of microbes and retain that gas production in a more manageable way from a symptom perspective.
0: Yeah, this the small intestine's a little wimpier. Little yeah. She's little, fragile. She's a fragile yeah. muscle. Smart. It's very smart. Mm. The colon's a bit more like robust. Hardy. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Hardy. Hardy. Hardy colon. But Take- one of the big things with the MMC is also just having a faulty ileocecal valve, right, Dave? With things flowing from the small intestine into the colon.
0: Yeah. So that and that ileocecal <clears throat> valve, uh, in my experience. Uh, is related often to the stomach and the pyloric sphincter. So uh, you had talked about these two structures, particularly there's, there's five main uh, sphincters or junctions. Um, So first one is that cardiac sphincter at the top of the stomach, then there's the pylorus, then there's the sphincter voti, which is um, the opening into the the duodenum from the common bile duct. Um, And then there's One that I don't remember ever learning about until I did my osteopathic training with the Brawl Institute, which is the duodenal-jejunal junction. Oh. DJ junction, which is not a true sphincter. There's a, it changes the angle of the tube. So the angle of the tube determines the flow rate uh, more so than a true sphincter. Very interesting. Cool. Uh Uh-huh. And the origin of it is actually from, uh, it attaches to the diaphragm. Very interesting. Uh, hmm. Especially from a when you're working uh, with like physical touch, you can you can feel it come from the back. Sometimes very interesting, um, and then also related to maybe burping and the diaphragm because that's coming from the I think it comes from the right crus of the diaphragm. Um, and then the last one, maybe the most important. If you only could work on one, iliosegal valve, it's it's probably that important. Um, and so I hear of chiropractors, I think sometimes working with it, um, with whatever, um, training or, or insights they've, they've had, but I will say these mechanicals, uh, these mechanical perspectives, you don't need much force. And I've seen people tell me the amount of force that other people have been using and it's like, um, too much.
1: Mm. Yeah. So how, okay. So for our listeners, how do we know if, say, the ileocecal valve is problematic? Yeah. What would be, like, what would be signs oh, of that? Oh,
0: that's a good one, you know, because I'm, um, because the way I work is normally when I don't have COVID-19, I'm in clinic with people uh, doing hands-on stuff so I can feel. Right. I, I can feel it. It's pretty straightforward. Um, but if I didn't have that, I would think maybe... That I think you talked about the alternating stools. Maybe that would be that would be uh, one sign.
1: If I'm S- suspecting SIBO, I'm also just going to want to make sure that the ileocecal valve is good.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a reasonable thing to sort of like pr- proactively treat, if you will. Um, Can I ask then- you
1: something, Dave? If you're doing yeah. a physical exam and you're going in to palpate it, what's What's the feedback for you? Is it that the client feels tenderness there or are you feeling something specific? Sometimes,
0: sometimes the former, always the latter.
1: Okay. Always you're feeling something specific. Yeah. That's yeah. where my palpation skills are not f- as definitive, but I'm usually asking my clients to give me feedback if that feels different than just my pokey fingers.
0: Yeah. I I think pokey fingers is always a good place to start. Okay. Yeah. And then um some sometimes. Uh, I just have to go with what I feel. Some some people, I think you've anyone who's done any kind of uh, uh, bedside kind of care where they do hands on, I think they know that some people feel things more than others. And there's multiple factors, I'm sure, as to like I even find gender deaf differences hmm. which don't apply across the board, of course, hmm. get into trouble saying anything about gender anyway. So um, but I, I do find like generally men are not as as tuned in uh i guess um in general but then i have some really sensitive guys too so yeah. I, I, yeah. Don't wanna, I don't want to i don't want to paint them all with the same brush but <clears throat> yeah i think it's I, also
1: I t- about going in and doing a general palpation and poking and then going in doing specific and then there's going to be a difference possibly for them to to notice yeah, exactly
0: shift. exactly so uh when like when i did the training with the brawl institute i they don't they just get you to sort of do it and communication is not really what is, um, emphasized. I Mm. I just do that because I like it. I I did it because I didn't have much confidence at first. And I like to get the feedback from the patient. Like, Hey, do you feel what I'm feeling here? And so I, I sort of did that way, but I like it that way. I prefer it. it. It connects well with the patient and, um, it makes it easier to, to, yeah, to make them understand why you're doing what you're doing instead of just like, Oh, I'm silently doing this can feel this, you know? Yeah. Um, But what you said was important too, having like maybe a generalized palpation first to have a kind of baseline. And then I usually do at least nine parts, maybe like, you know, when you can, you can subdivide the abdomen at least into those nine sections, right? You got Mm -hmm. right right hypochondrium, um, epigastrium and left hypochondrium, that sort of right lumbar area, peri that sort of thing. At least then you... um, they have different data points to work with and they can maybe start, Hey, no one's ever really touched me there, it, but it does feel a little bit more sensitive there. That's cool. That's, that's a learning for them in a way too, because they, um, they may find something out when you, when you poke there, it's like, Oh, it also hurts when you poke there. I feel it down my leg or thinking cool stuff. So to answer yeah. your question about the ileocecal valve, at least that alternating uh, stools uh, sort of like loose or, or maybe then constipated maybe right hip pain. Mm. Uh, Any Anytime you're working in like the colon, lower part of the colon, uh, more like a sacral area, back pain, maybe what people feel. Um, And then, yeah, touch it. And just like you said, just touch it and don't have to poke too hard, but like poke on the other side to have a comparator.
1: Yeah. I've heard that, you know, there are certain people who are, I guess, more experts or leaders in the SIBO Community, and they do discuss massaging or doing a little bit of a ileocecal valve release or even pyloric sphincter release to ensure that that proper flow. So again, so there is no backlogging, there is no hiccup in how things are supposed to move, so that we don't have more of an overgrowth of something or increased fermentation in the wrong spaces. So, um, I I do give some of those exercises, and I don't know if those are the some of the ones that are a bit more aggressive. And I tell my clients they don't have to like. I've seen some 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 videos where people are taking like hand weights and like digging it in. And I'm like, oh, that oh, feels man. a little, that feels a little tough, right? Like I feel like your fingers and your hands are probably sufficient.
0: Too much. Uh, yeah. it's just generally what I would say is I I just I know I've I've had patients tell me how hard people are pressing, and I I know it's it's too okay. much most of the time. Yeah. I, I would still say like uh well-intentioned, uh unskilled touch is better than no touch. Yeah. And you won't. Probably cause any problems that way.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, totally.
0: The, these are soft, intelligent organs, especially like we're talking about the small intestine—very soft, very intelligent organ. You want to be very gentle with it. Um, yeah.
1: And then it's sometimes that area palpation in that area. See, I wouldn't be able to differentiate if it's something like a mildly inflamed appendix versus an ileocecal valve being stuck because it's very much around that same area, and my palpation skills are not sensitive enough for that but
0: you know what you could i mean just at least doing the like you said the palpation where you're including the patient in it and mm. and you won't catch everyone that way that's no. what I think. but you'll you'll catch some more serious ones that way but uh, for anyone who's like who who hasn't done sort of extensive training in this area i, I still think um if you if you basically find like mcburney's point or if you have the skills with your hand that you can feel uh deeper sort of tensions within tissues then find that ileocecal valve and needle it uh just Mm -hmm. do a uh, ashy point uh acupuncture needle point i use like serin 0.16 by 30 the red handle really really tiny uh, and you don't have to go very far you could probably even if you want to be really safe you could do the 0.16 by uh 20 or whatever just to be so you're not going very deep because you don't the more precise you are it's like martial arts the more precise you are the you don't need to go very far usually very far depth and you'll get a you'll get a response from the patient They'll so
1: what what are we trying to do then in in, in effect is it that it's spazzing or stiff or locked and we're trying to release it can you explain like what the actual purpose is of 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 doing these valve releases because i know like they're helpful but i i would actually appreciate a little bit more
0: uh well i'd love to know more than i already do let's let me just start off with that um Mm -hmm. they are dysfunctional Mm. grossly dysfunctional they are highly 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 innervated uh with parasympathetic uh smart, smart, nervous control, um, parasympathetic, uh, innervation. Mm -hmm. So when you, um, invariably almost people just feel, uh, very relaxed after you do these, uh, those five junctions and sphincters, Okay. because you're inducing some sort of like reset to parasympathetic tone. Okay, cool. Yeah. They're, they're, uh, they're parasympathetic, uh, like hotspots big time.
1: So if, if you were to teach people to massage them yourselves, it's probably good to do it before bed and then they might get a nice sleep after. Maybe. <laughs>
0: yeah. No, maybe. And <clears throat> and then it, uh, I do want to teach naturopaths uh, to to needle them. I just, I needle them. Uh, it's, I know
1: you've it's... often told me like, you just like, if you feel something in the gallbladder area, he's like, just needle it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, those spots are like that, that you don't have cool. to, you, you don't, I'm trying to take the, the deep, deep training of the osteopathic stuff I've learned, and then just sort of make it a little bit more accessible and a little bit more uh, simpler to, to do. And and those five, those five areas, actually, I'll give away my, I'll give away my protocol here for the, for the needles. So those five areas. So um, the, the two sphincters at the beginning and end of the stomach, the pylorus probably being the most important of those two. Um, then you do adenal, jejunal junction, sphincter, voti, and your ileocecal valve. You do those. And if you do the front move point of the liver, you mm-hmm. remember that one in six yeah. intercostal space nipple line, uh, that one is a beauty too. Um, and then I do uh, stomach 25 bilateral, mm-hmm. um, which is just, again, more like a traditional couple of traditional points. And, uh, if you're feeling up to it, if you, if you feel like the transverse colon or the descending colon are a bit stiff or whatever i i do like a spleen i've found a spleen reflex point or splenic flexure reflex point uh, around the ninth tenth um ninth tenth rib and people will feel it if you poke it you have to hmm. be precise but they will know that okay that's the money and then if you do those um i i think the i think you're that's gonna get cool. some real real benefit with any sort of motility yep. issues yeah.
1: Because yeah. if we just go back to SIBO, IBS, blah, 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 and it's not all SIBO, sometimes it could be structural that's limiting function. Yeah. And improving the flow or improving the integrity of the structure, which then improves the integrity of the function, then some of those digestive complaints can more easily be resolved. And it's not a matter of going in with aggressive antimicrobials.
0: And yeah. I appreciate
1: that, right? I feel like. Even my mind over the last, I started to, like I said, I started to read about that liver gallbladder flush and sometimes he positions things in such an interesting way. And I was like, maybe I have to start changing my approach a little bit. Maybe even I'm too aggressive about some of those things. Even though it does get the job done, there might be a better way to approach yeah. this that is a little bit more holistic and a little bit kinder to the body and the natural microbiome too. Because I wonder about that myself.
0: Yeah, I think, I think we're, as practitioners, we're curious and hopefully uh, yeah i mean i well if you're a naturopath i think you have a curiosity hopefully um and uh there's yeah you have to be curious but i think you have to try and be more for me i'm i'm i don't know i just feel simple but saying this so i'm just looking for efficiency Mm. you know like i don't um if there's a more efficient way in terms of like time energy money and i know that i can do that for someone i'm gonna i'm gonna do it um there's too much stuff to do in your day in your life. I don't, I don't want to waste anyone's time, energy, money. Um, so yeah, it's about efficiency and safety. And, and, uh, I have a principle, I'm sure you have some sort of similar thing where it's like the principle of least dose to get the job done. Yeah. Um, that goes for like supplements too. I, I, homeopathics supplements, um, uh, to force in doing things, least amount to get the job done. If you need more mm-hmm. then you need more, but really I think, try and use the least you know okay I, we didn't get we we came all the way from the stomach and i want to go back to it
1: yeah i know i was just going to say we totally kind of got over that one so um because you were going
0: to tell us about ways to tonify stomach acid or right uh yeah so go
1: so okay well first of all there are bitter receptors throughout our whole digestive system and we do not eat Primarily, we don't really eat a lot of bitter foods in North America. And then I went, then I'm kind of like, (laughs) that's probably a really big limiting factor for people's digestion. We eat a lot of fat, we eat a lot of sugar, we eat a lot of um, salts. And not even the right salts, right? Like not like full spectrum mineral salts. So I think that that is a big limiting factor because those digestive bitters really stimulate, again, stimulating that function, stimulating that flow. It's like throughout the whole digestive tract. And like, as Dave and I have discussed, it's, it's from the mouth all the way to the uranus. Like there's a lot of moving parts and it's, it's lined with digestive bitters. So digestive food, like, sorry, bitter foods are great. So I've often been having people uptick on eating things like radicchio, artichokes, arugula, you know, rapini, bitter, like I grew up with those as an Italian, like with Italian heritage. So like, I love those. Uh, another one are sour foods and fermented foods, which also help stimulate gastric juices and gastric function and bile production and pancreatic juices. So these are all wonderful things to incorporate to improve stomach acid production. We discussed at the previous podcast how your stomach acid starts to get produced before food even enters your mouth with the smell and the various signals from food. So that's why cooking your own meals starts to send those sensory neurons ablaze and they start to tell your stomach guess what foods come in start getting ready and there's a disconnect if you're just always e- eating uber eats all the time yep. so those those little things and mindful eating and slowing down and having a few deep breaths before you eat and chewing your food all of that will also further support your stomach acid without having to reach for a pill or anything specific and i don't, can't stress that enough yep. um, I, I do use betaine HCL. So it's a way of supplementing stomach acid. There are, there are, there's evidence to show that by adding in more acid, you can almost like reignite the fire of acid production. So you start by taking one pill with every meal that includes protein. So not just like a snack, every meal that includes protein, um, with every meal. I'll do that for a couple of days. If you don't feel any kind of like sensation behind your breastplate, your sternum, any burning or reflux or anything like that, you can increase it to two, et cetera. Et cetera. I'm going to do
0: this that yeah. you're talking about. I'm going to do yeah. what you're telling us to do.
1: And you Just. can then go to two. And then if you don't feel any kind of weird stomach sensations or discomfort you go to three and then you hold steady at whatever that number is I usually tell people to a maximum of six because otherwise it gets excessive with pills and people are like this is ridiculous yeah. um one of my clients recently didn't follow my instructions even though I specifically say up to a maximum of six he's like, so I got to 12 pills and only then I start to feel the burn I'm like oh my god
0: <laughs> The yeah, 12 pills is madness.
1: I was like, I can't in good conscience, have you swallow 12, 12 pills. So the purpose of this is that let's say you get to six, but eventually that six should start to create a little bit of that warmth. And Where when do it does it? behind your, behind your breastbone, like stomach okay. level, like sternum level, right? Right yeah. in the, right in the back of right between your breasts behind the plate there, that breastplate. So Like where people
0: would get heartburn sort of Correct, right? So if you
1: get a heartburn sensation or even reflux, then you drop it down by a capsule and then you hold steady there until that creates that same sensation. And then you drop it down until you can wean yourself off. And that almost reignites the fire of acid production. So for people who are excessively deficient, or I'm really suspecting that there is like a real need to do this, I might have them ignite things that way. And then I what about push- safety?
0: Just just a quick note on is yeah. there anything to be to be worried about? Because when I give people bitters, one thing I am concerned about is like any history of ulcers or same like same or whatever.
1: Yeah, because you're putting in acid back. You need to make sure that again the terrain is good. So um there's so so you have to work on that. That's where the investigation has to happen. So you know what your limiting factors are before jumping into this. That's not something I jump into blindly I'm not just like. Yeah. We have low stomach acid, cool bitters. And I'm just like, Ooh, do you have H. Pylori? Have you had an endoscopy? Is there ulcers? You know, you want to do your due diligence before just going in and say you're right with bitters and even apple cider vinegar. Cause apple cider vinegar is another way to stimulate digestive function. But if someone's stomach lining is in funny research on it, I couldn't nope. find
0: any, which is so weird, I think, because it's, I, I've heard a lot of people do really, really well on it. Mm-hmm. What, what do you, what do you know? Like just it's sort of old school thing. Is that, is that where you're going on? It's tradition.
1: It must, it might, it must be because I know it's recommended all the time, but you're, yeah. but you're right. I haven't necessarily seen like research per se, but I've used it and I find it to be helpful even for, for myself. Other clients yeah. find it helpful. I also think I'm also now a little bit more partial to apple cider vinegar because it's the malic acid for gallstones. And cool. so I like that too. Um, and I recently learned that if people take some apple cider vinegar and they feel nauseated or something after that might actually be a sign of like, Thicker, sludgy bile and gallstones. Right, it's related. So, anyways, that's a little aside. But um, apple cider vinegar and bitters. So you like your gentians, your globe artichoke, your um, coptis, berberines, artemisia, right? Um, different kinds of herbs to stimulate it. And that's it. it was so funny because when I was younger, my parents had this. Aperitif, digestive aperitif called Cinar. And I had a big globe artichoke on the front cover. And I loved artichokes as a kid. And yeah. I would always be like, oh, I want to try this. And it was so bitter. And I was like, this label is deceiving. And I was so, I was like so upset. <laughs> but now in hindsight, I really appreciate the Cinar. And a part of me feels like I need to go investigate if that's still available at the LCBO and bring that into the house for a little digestive aperitif. And people were onto that. That's why you know, Aperol spritz and those like Agostina bitters and having those kinds of liqueurs to sip on after meals improves digestibility.
0: Yeah. No, there's probably something to do with this. Uh, like, the, like you are talking about the bitter taste, mm-hmm. um, how that stimulates bitter sensing neurons. And so there's probably something similar with sour sensing um, neurons.
1: That's why like people even say they have a lemon water to settle their stomach. Yeah. Like, is there a lot of research on the effects of lemons for stomach acid and digestion? I don't know if I've come across that, but it always settles, it often settles my stomach. My, it was like one of those things that my mom always told me to have. And if I had an upset stomach, I'd have a lemon water and it would yeah. totally work. So there's something to traditional medicines that science isn't, hasn't caught up with yet or hasn't bothered investigating.
0: Although good good research, I think, for kidney stones and uh, oh, yeah? lemon water, lemon or lime citrus. Yeah, because the citric acid, yeah, um, or citrate, um, yeah. yeah. So, the the research will come sometime. I I hope. Um, what about uh, burping? I I I want to hear your your take on burping, and then I'll I'll add um my take on it.
1: Like I you said, for- it could
0: be a sign of low stomach acid.
1: Yeah. What yeah. else?
0: What do you think of with burping?
1: Because if you don't have enough stomach acid, the mechanical side of the stomach has to work harder, but also it might begin to ferment a little bit more because there's not enough acid to help break it down so that could create some more gas. That's what I've understood or what I've come across for why burping happens with low stomach acidity.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've just seen it. Um, I find burping is, because it's such a, Uh, because once I learned the, the sort of more mechanical side of things, it seemed like such a mechanical, uh, it's so grossly mechanical, right? Like it's Mm -hmm. obviously like there's the diaphragms contracting, there's some weird burp happening. Um, but before I knew all that stuff, I did notice that, uh, I looked at the research on like, you know, have you ever heard those people that like burp, like crazy, like burp, like uncontrollable burping, like, like it was a couple of sweet old ladies that I had and they had this crazy like burps that would like, it's like, they're channeling some massive beast. And, <laughs> and, uh and it was, but it had to do with like parasympathetic, like a lack of parasympathetic tone in mm. a way. When I looked at the research too, like to the point that they were almost dismissed in the literature as like, Oh, these people are stressed or, mm. or like uh it's more of a mental, but I, I, I have a problem with this whole, infatuation with everything being mental as if mental has nothing to do with physical i i uh well that's just my
1: i, I mean i like... think i think a lot of things begin in the head and they dissipate into the body so i think a lot of disease is mental and it started there but they're not mutually exclusive yeah right? like it's not just mental health is mental health no it's a big part as of as if physical it, but it,
0: it's treated as if it's like some
1: separate entity like yeah.
0: separate entity like ooh, it's out in the mental no man like it's also got a body side to it anyway
1: so um, you found it to burping to be more related to parasympathetic lack of parasympathetic
0: well that's what the research that i saw was and i thought it was relevant in these cases i think they Mm. were sort of nervy if you will sort of women lovely lovely but they were sort of like nervy nervous sort of Mm. types but i get great results um trying to do whatever uh physical structures are are involved with it and um, so I think there's a, there's a bit of both um, going on with with uh, with burping, um, yeah. But that's like every like it's anytime I'm talking about this mechanical anatomical stuff, it's not always the only thing. Um, there's usually a bit of both.
1: That's it. The body's of of a, a lot of moving parts. Yeah, including the mental emotional. So one, th-
0: yeah, like that. So the so burping, I would say. Um, Think about your stomach acid, but also think about your stomach proper. And yeah. um, maybe it's pulling on your diaphragm and, uh, you know, maybe just get some simple acupuncture done or or whatever. That that CV-12 acupuncture point needs to be, like, put on a pedestal.
1: I feel like I'm literally going to pull out some needles and start needling my abdomen after this podcast. <laughs> CV-12. <laughs> like, just check a little bit here and here and just chill out. it be great. yeah. It's, It'll make for a much better, easier digestion of Christmas or and holiday meals coming up. So I'll just start <laughs> acupuncturing my abdomen in between meals.
0: While you, I mean, maybe just I'm While not. While really... I'm eating,
1: I'm like, excuse <laughs> me, guys. <laughs> That's
0: the sign, please. Please, um, but when, you, if and when you needle it, think like, look at look at pictures of all the um, like, go sort of through all the layers of tissues that are underneath there mm-hmm. or like above there, and you'll see like. There's a crazy, there's like portal vein, uh, lesser omentum, there's the pylorus, there's massive vagal innervation. Like if you look at all the structures that are there, you'll see why it's like, it's sore in a lot of people if you poke them there.
1: Yeah, it's true. It's true. Mm -hmm. And I find a lot of people have gotten referral pains when I touch them there or even like the sphincter of Audi.
0: Yeah
1: that's why I like having conversations with you because you're like, and then it goes through this layer and then this layer. And I'm like, I totally forgot about all that. You know what I mean? So I, it's nice. It's nice. refresher.
0: Yeah. I mean, but I have to, I have to check myself sometimes I get, you gotta, you can't forget the other stuff too. Like I forgot about betaine HCL.
1: Right. But that's where you and I compliment each other. You're going to learn me.
0: You're going to learn me on that. I'm going to, I'm going to learn myself. I'm going to, I'm going to, I have some betaine in the, uh, in the, uh, cupboard here and I'm going to start using it yeah, because I, I didn't I haven't known really what to do with it to mm. be honest mm-hmm. um, yeah
1: I'm currently I'm currently on the betaine train so
0: okay cool well, well we'll um we'll talk about how it goes um only if it's good next week yeah
1: yeah yeah yeah. no let <laughs> <I'll> me t- <laughs> no I really I'll talk I to I you do,
0: privately I- if it's not
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> shit <laughs> um okay there's a few other things we wanted to touch on before we wrap it up yes. i mean we were going to talk a little bit more about prebiotics and postbiotics and we touched a little bit about that so like we talked about our mixed feelings about probiotics that it's it's evolved since our early days of of training as young budding and naturopaths yeah but prebiotics dave can you please explain to the crowd what prebiotics are
0: um yeah prebiotics feed your they selectively feed your good bacteria so they're indigestible starches that get down to the colon and uh, and in the case of of SIBO I suppose they might just get down to parts of the ileum or jejunum where those bugs um, that are supposed to be in the in the colon primarily maybe they hang out there and maybe that's where the SIBO people have some problem with prebiotics, but personally, I find them one of my top four. Very
1: um, fertilizer, if you would.
0: Yeah, exactly. They're right. they're a fertilizer for the for the again. Remember, preferential uh, to to growth of the good bacteria. Right. That is now, absolutely key to to know. They don't just feed all bacteria indiscriminately.
1: I think that's where it gets hairy with like things like SIBO, is because. In some, in in many cases with SIBO, it's not necessarily that you have infectious bacteria. It's just you have too much even of a good thing in the small intestines because right. there's only supposed to be a certain amount. So that's where even the preferential feeding the good still creates symptoms for people struggling with SIBO. So I I understand why there's hesitancy, yeah. but I would make it. A, I personally choose to make it a part of my recovery phase rather than the eradication phase. I hold off on it. Yeah. And then I make it a part of the recovery phase to, to again, reestablish establish a good terrain.
0: I get what they're saying there too. Yeah. Um, but luckily I've got other tools. Yeah. I think that's where having a few different tools becomes. Um, yeah. Really, really key. Like for example, uh, bloating, like we we touched on bloating. Usually there, I would think with bloating there's just, What's going on is proximal to the area of bloating and distal to the area of bloating. There's probably some sort of physical restriction of flow, mm. and um, so then you've got a comp- you got things that are growing in a comp- uh, in a compressed or or whatever area, and that is going to cause straining uh, or cause strain on the visceral sensors, which respond. Remember to they have chemo sensors. And they have mechanical sensors, so the mechanical sensors are going to feel the stretch. It feels really crappy. Bloating feels crappy, right? Some people feel really, really crappy with bloating. But if you really think about what's going on. If flow was going uh, from uh, you know superior to well from mouth to anus properly, you probably wouldn't get too much bloating going on. So I, I do think um, there's a place there for then carminatives and like mm-hmm. anti spasmodics, and then working on the structures. Yeah. Because if the structures are not uh, are, are allowing tissues to, to move properly, tissues that move properly work properly, and t- all tissues move. So, um, this is a thing that's not really, I don't think, hammered into us in naturopathic college, but then osteopaths are big on it. Let's say an organ in motion is healthy. Mm-hmm. So, uh, that's where that bloating comes in. At, and then that's why I'd say, like, maybe that's why I can get away with more. Prebiotics, or something, because we're going to keep things moving at the same time. Right.
1: No, I appreciate that. I think that's good. And And then, then, but but what about
0: your thing with uh, stomach acid? Because stomach acid will set the tone for the rest of digestion, too. And you were limiting your discussion basically to the stomach, but no you didn't you said no we touched it, on it earlier yeah, when, when okay, it was right. it
1: really is it's it's a top-down scenario and if you write exactly. a limited function at the top then good luck to the rest of it exactly it. okay cool right I think yeah, we've, yeah yeah
0: we've clarified that okay good and i
1: think we we touched on that in the, in the previous podcast as well as today i feel like that's okay. a I, I hope that's a if nothing else that's a huge take-home message to everybody <laughs> moving forward <laughs> right yeah um and and like things prebiotic fibers and basically every vegetable has some sort of fiber fiber is not beneficial to us on a cell level. It's beneficial on a colonic and microbial level. And then we get benefits because of that effect and we'll get yeah. to postbiotics, but I wanted to touch on specific prebiotic foods like green bananas, plantains. Oh my God. Fried plantains and coconut oil with some cinnamon is, mm, um, good. Oh yeah. She, she's nice. She's a nice one. And, uh, potatoes. I don't know so if we
0: he- have, uh, plantains in our uh honky-tonk uh grocery store
1: i live in brampton and there is a cornucopia (laughs) of ethnicities around here so like the frutinos is jacked up with really awesome variety of foods and i'm very grateful for that i uh those plantains green bananas and uh potatoes like if you cooked white rice or white potatoes and then let them cool those then become a resistant starch which acts as a prebiotic food for your yeah, gut and even so a small cool. a little small amount of that can go a long way right you don't need to eat like a whole bowlful uh Jerusalem artichokes i did the <laughs> i made the mistake of getting a whole bunch of sunchokes or jerusalem artichokes and turning them into mashed potatoes with other mash but it was just it was way too much. And my boyfriend and I it was my first time having them. And I wasn't, I wasn't putting two to two together. And we had them for dinner. And we're like, oh, these are delicious. I'll have to get them again. And the amount of writhing gas pains both of us experienced throughout the course of the night was unbelievable. Dave, I don't even I don't think i felt gas pains like this before in my life. And I was like, I think I made I think it was too much inulin. And my boyfriend's like, Oh my like,
0: God, that's funny.
1: He's like, You don't ever buy those again. And I'm like, sorry. <laughs>
0: oh so my god spari- but together Sparingly. at least together Sparingly. you did it together yeah,
1: yeah it was love um <laughs> but uh yeah but but those are really good sources of it and like you said just like a good old psyllium right like little yeah. things like that can go a long way
0: yeah i use um i i get a lot of patients use that fiberific stuff just fructo-oligosaccharides mm-hmm. made from uh inulin and yeah. uh there's a ton of different stuff that prebiotics do there's a ton of research and and i that's the prebiotics are one of the casualties of the SIBO fanaticism I, I find. Yeah. Um, so we have to be, um, they've been, careful. they become
1: villainized in a way because yeah, yeah. of the whole SIBO and low FOD maps. And that's why I was saying, I don't really like to use it as my first line of approach to the low FOD maps, because it already sets the precedence that certain fibers are bad. Yeah. And I don't like that.
0: No, me either. Okay. And then one yeah. thing I wanted to, I wanted to say, cause I have it uh, bolded and underlined. And in all capitals.
1: But can we go to postbiotics really? Oh, quickly? sure, go, yeah. Right, because we're talking about the prebiotics, and it's the effects of those fibers when our microbiome and our probiotics eat them. Yeah. The postbiotic is the aftermath of that, yes. right? So short short chain fatty acids are one of those wonderful after after products from bacteria eating prebiotics and and starches and resistant starches and fibers and short chain fatty acids fuel our enteric cells are the cells that line our uh, like our gastrointestinal tract and then they can work more effectively on your behalf
0: they do so many i mean but aren't they part acid, of your immune system yeah, they do so too? many it's like so... so many things i mean uh, like you said those are the most important probably the main ones that they they support the colonocytes they reduce, in-
1: reduce inflammation improves immune health like those are the ones that stand out in my mind. Yeah, like and improving you, the health of the cells.
0: If you don't want colon cancer, do your best to make a lot of butyric acid.
1: Like, make, yeah,
0: like that is that is for sure. Now it can do a lot more beyond that for yeah. sure. But those those short chain fatty acids are just sweet sweet nectar. Yeah.
1: And postbiotics are a really big thing with like comes even B vitamin production, vitamin K. Those are quite important yeah. for our existence right and we we yes. take that for granted if you're not getting those fibers to feed your bacteria
0: that's uh, that's something i haven't gone down the rabbit hole on yet and i i do hope to go down the rabbit hole on which My- is the vitamin k and b12 and the the bacteria that are um helpful for us in making those things synthesizing yeah. them for us like which is yeah. crazy
1: I haven't gone down the full rabbit hole of that either, but I was looking into some things really quickly to, to just get more familiar with the postbiotics. But also, I was reading something that they also make substances that are actually naturally antimicrobial that help slow down the growth of harmful bacteria. And I was like, way to go. Yeah. I was like, that's nice. Yeah. So, so another, another toot toot to those like pun intended to um, prebiotics, right? Because it does end up helping with battling off the bad microbes.
0: Yeah. And, the, and, you know, when you talk about um, postbiotics and, and you talk about fermented foods, you know, what, what you're also, so when people, I I feel like when people talk about fermented foods, they often talk about the probiotics that you get with them, right? which is um, maybe not the most important part. I'd love to hear what Dave Nelson says. Cause he really is, I mean, he's, he's really up on the microbiome and everything, but, um, what I think is possibly more important or at least equally worth, uh, assessing as extremely important is the fact that you're eating the menstruum, you know, that they grew in basically. So it's not uh, when you eat like sauerkraut or, or whatever, the bugs have already fermented and created all these crazy cool stuff that then you eat. So you're not just necessarily eating the bugs, you're eating the metabolic end products that the bugs have made. And that might be the real gangster shit. Like the uh, postbiotic
1: basically of that fermentation process. That's
0: that's what I was getting at. Yeah.
1: yeah. There's also, you know, just by, by and part of that is cabbage is great, but then when you ferment the cabbage, this might be part of that postbiotic discussion. It actually opens up nutrients that would not have been otherwise accessible to you from that vegetable source. And I've learned that yes. when I was working at the Big Carrot because they had certain supplements that would be like fermented fermented versions of botanicals because then it opens up new properties of yes. the botanical that would not have been accessed otherwise and i feel like that's a really beautiful thing too that we don't get you know, we have a lot of dead food in our world and not a lot of like alive and vital and nutrient rich and like just cracked open for like you're taking right and that's where fermented foods come in and i think it's great
0: yeah it's like you you contract out or outsource some um digestion it's awesome
1: Super awesome. Okay, let's get to the bold and underlined. Dave did not want to miss the opportunity to speak about this, and I agree.
0: Okay. Well, we we I talked about it with, like I said, I talked about it on a previous podcast, so, yeah. so listen to that one uh, if you want to hear more in detail, but I, I couldn't talk about IBS and not talk about the fact that um, straining is never okay. If you're straining to have a bowel movement, and when you're done, you feel like you're not done, or there's more that's supposed to come out. Um, that's never okay. And that's a, that's a pretty damn surefire sign that you've got some pelvic floor dysfunction. Um, and that is a major, I would say, um, I just thought about it. Like uh, if the outlet of all your stool doesn't work properly, the end, the end of the line, Mm -hmm. then it's not going to be very pretty at all you need things to get out properly if your mechanism for getting poop out of your body is compromised from a sort of structural or muscular or nervous system perspective that's not good and so i think it's really really important and it's it's overlooked and i'm going to admit that until this year yeah i think until this year and i i think i know a thing or two about this stuff i didn't realize how important it would be to get someone assess pelvic floor or whatever, if they have problems with constipation that has to do with straining, get that checked out. Just yeah. like, yeah, that, that is something that if you're a naturopath or any other kind of practitioner, like if you can sort of imbue the importance of this to your patient and then refer them out specifically for that, get it checked out because once you get the outlet fixed, I don't care about, like if someone, for example, let's put it this way there's like hierarchies of importance. I think if you are straining and you can't poo properly, you always feel unfinished. I don't care if you have sibo or not. Get that figured out.
1: That's a major limiting factor. No matter what else you do. It's a huge limiting factor.
0: Absolutely. And I feel like, silly because it's now what are we like 12 years in practice and i just and i think i call myself a gut gangster and i just learned this so like it's not about like feeling bad about it but it's like we got to learn to do better and that's one area that i think um if you can't fix it with hands-on therapies or or whatever therapies you have outsource it because naturopaths are sort of the i don't know you should be the quarterback of this kind of care i think
1: Well, I think that's why I said there's a level of curiosity that we need to have as health professionals, because things are always changing. The environment in which we live in changes, people evolve, our foods evolving, everything is changing on us. And we need to be able to continue to evolve too. And like so much was neglected about the digestive health, about digestive health in general for a really long time. I feel like when you and I were in school, what is it like 10 to 12 years ago, probiotics were the hot ticket and they had only been really been super hot for like a good five to six years at that point yeah think about how behind we were I know already and I feel like every year I evolve in my ability to understand how to support digestion and I don't think that's ever going to stop even this year even just this month I've been reading a new book and I'm like oh I need to I think I need to change my approach I think I need to start reevaluating this I think you know and and I think it's 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 a good thing for me to have that healthy curiosity and want to improve, and that's why I also enjoy the conversations with you because even though we don't always approach things the same way, we might get we might get results with our clients, but we're coming at it from two different very very different perspectives, and I appreciate learning that aspect that you present that differs from me and then it allows me to grow and evolve right and I feel like that it's necessary
0: likewise, and i I think that's why you know you'll always be a good clinician if you. If you um, maintain that curiosity and the that humility to be able to go, what what I thought I knew before, I, okay, maybe I have to trim that down. Yeah. But that uh, that stuff I really know, and then oh, also this I didn't know, and uh, yeah. yeah, that's why you'll be a great cl- clinician. That's why you got got love of the game, and that's why people love uh, love seeing an naturopath who loves the game.
1: Back at you, Dave. Yeah. So another thing for no straining, yes, the pelvic floor, but what can people start doing at home? I tell people, I often tell people to get like a stool. It doesn't have to be the squatty potty. Oh
0: but yeah. I get- yeah. I can't believe I didn't say it. We talk about it in the in that <laughs> podcast. But yes, squatty potty. We got three in this house
1: yeah like like get something to prop your feet up optimize optimize the relaxation of those muscles and their positioning so that things come out in a much better place in a much better way
0: i'm glad you brought that up yes
1: right if you're not drinking a lot of fire like water then then you know stay hydrated because if you got hard poops that's gonna be a real that's 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 a that's that's a a tough one to pinch out after you know like
0: should slide out
1: it should slide out should not come out in hard little nuggets that is not a good sign and then I i was telling you earlier today that people who strain and th- they feel the need to like push and I want to get people out of that. And I found myself when I was struggling, I would still default to that. And I have to unwrite that habit as well. Um, but things to stimulate your parasympathetic nervous, parasympathetic nervous response. We've touched on that with the ileocecal valve and the valves and the whatever, but I can't stress it enough. So you can Whistle sing,
0: while you, you can
1: come. Yeah, like- Right, sing, hum, chant, laugh, deep breathing, anything that gets you out of uh, mode where you're gritting through it. That's that's not the mode that 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 just puts you into stress response. And then we already know because we've hammered it in that's not optimal for digestive function.
0: Rest and digest.
1: Rest and digest, or sing, sing and poop, babe. Like like set your feet up on a stool and sing.
0: Why not?
1: Yeah. What do, we to
0: lose? what do you have to lose?
1: <laughs> you're public, you're in a public stall. Maybe you'll make a friend. You'll all chime yeah, in together. Yeah, you're gonna make a
0: friend, and then you'll lose one that's no good anyway if they don't like. It.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's when we try to make friends in public washrooms. Just start singing while you're trying to take a number two.
0: <laughs> Whistle while you
1: poop. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So good. Cool. Anyways, so hot hot tips from me and the me and Dave. Yeah. Just sing while you take a crap.
0: I like it. I like it. Okay, well, uh, that's IBS. I think wrapped up. Um, If people have more questions or whatever down the line, maybe we'll talk about some specifics again. But I think that's a a pretty good sort of overview of it. And uh, thanks for letting me go on about the uh, structural side. It's it's something that us naturopaths have to. I think if we integrated it um, into the way we learn, we -hmm. would be uh, far superior.
1: Yeah, I think we like. I think we like just grant we were just grinding through that physical exam course yeah. but i don't think we really i don't think i appreciated it then like i appreciate it now and i wish that yeah. you know i kept it up a lot more wholeheartedly through the 10 years too many courses la-
0: michelle yeah too many was, courses yeah. i remember one term i had 13 courses like yeah that, but even after graduating
1: crazy. i just didn't respect the physical exam after graduating until the last few years that's not your like, fault right
0: but that's not your fault because you didn't learn it in a way that gave you actionable, precise Mm. assessment and therefore things you can do. And that's why I'm going to tell if anyone like is at a naturopathic college right now, start boring physical examination or physical exam techniques from osteopaths and not as much from the conventional medical community when it comes to abdominal examination. I don't, I don't get much actionable from that what we learned, and there, that's no. why Michelle, that's why you didn't focus on it because like what the hell are you get? What's the point of do oh abdomen tender to palpation Wow, Thanks, I Tim. know, that's
1: yeah, great. I know every time I hear an interesting story from a client, I send them to an osteopath and they come back and they have like a wild wow moment, or they tell me a story about their osteopath shared with them, or this. I'm always just like, osteopathy is so. It's so wild and I'm so grateful that it's something I can refer out to because it's it's their ability to assess those subtle, subtle shifts Yeah, is pretty incredible. And like you said, that pulse, right? There's a constant pulse or a wave or fluidity or movement with things. And if it becomes stagnant, like I even learned recently, the, the retainers behind people's teeth, so one of my clients, osteopaths, was saying that there's a pulse in the roof of the mouth, and that's going to limit the pulse. And my client yeah. was suffering. She was suffering with so many things. And I was like, oh, man, does she have like a crazy mold overgrowth? So we were working through some things, but everything I would give her would feel like it would set her off. So we were just right. trying to do things that would absorb, like, you know, like humic and fulvic acid to absorb and try to get out and at least, the bar- you know, to try... And then she talked to this osteopath who does more oral care stuff. And she went to her orthodontist and he basically denied that that was a thing. And she pushed to have her retainer that was cemented into her teeth removed. And the minute, like literally within hours to a day of having it removed, things began to shift to come back to a state of normal for her. And I was like, that's so incredible.
0: Yeah. It's so incredible. These subtle um, anatomical things won't be accepted conventionally for a while but um you watch they will be
1: yeah and i was like how many people have these cemented retainers yeah (laughs) anyways i thought that was just the coolest story but like i'm just happy the next time i saw her on a virtual she just looked different i was like something's different about you she just looked more alive again and it was wild
0: partner up yeah always partner up i think with a good osteopath and um i think the natural thing is you're going to borrow one or two of the things from the other and uh yeah yeah, the assessment of the gut would be one that we need to so yeah that being said i think it's time to wrap up our chat on ibs thank you again michelle for being my very fun uh sparkly uh co-host this is this is great
1: fun i like this it's good too
0: okay let's do it again next week see you next week